0: Hello, Clinical Research Circle. Welcome back to another episode. You guys have been patiently waiting for these small cap biotechs with a lot of potential and a good story behind it. And it's not so often we get to interview the president and CEO of one of these companies. We just did that last week with Chem Farm, KMPH with Dr. Um Mickle, Travis Mickle. Uh, they're working on the ADHD drug. Uh, Saeed, I don't know if you're familiar with them. Are you familiar with uh, Travis Mickle over there at, at Chem Farm?
1: I am not. I know of the company, but not intimately familiar with the company. They're
0: interesting, is- too. They do a pro-drug for ADHD, and then they're working on a substance use disorder. So it's these kind of companies that we like to focus on, companies with good stories, with good why. they're. You know, a good reason for doing this. And Kintara Therapeutics, definitely one of those companies, uh, developing advanced oncology therapies for rare unmet, unmet medical needs. Like I said, we have Saeed Zarabi Anon, president and CEO of Kintara Therapeutics. We wanted to talk to him about his career, how one even becomes a president and CEO of a biotech, publicly traded biotech. Like, how does that happen? Uh, So we want to get into his career journey to some extent, because we've been doing a career series. And then we wanted to talk and end it with a little bit of on Kintara as well. Some of the interesting things that they just announced recently in these past several months. And then we're going to open that up for a part two interview uh where we could discuss more specifics about kantara and the stock so in this one we're going to get to know the ceo president and ceo saeed Zirabi. And so saeed welcome to the show good morning great to see you dan nice to see you too and monica who is my co-host hey, is joining as well and we're going to be asking we love asking people questions about their careers it's actually our specialty, what Monica and I do for a living. Uh, so let's get right into it. Like, how did you get started in life sciences? You know,
1: it's, it's been 40 years in the coming of interest. It's 20 years in other industries before I kind of came into the life sciences arena from the tool side. I uh, started my career in computer-assisted design and manufacturing, and I have to admit, I've been very fortunate. I've had the luck to be in the leading edge of many, many new industries that have really changed the world in many ways. And I've, uh, I'm very proud to have played my small part in getting some of these products to the market and changing the paradigm. But I started uh, in my early days at a company called Computer Vision, which was in the 70s, uh, designing computational mechanical engineering and uh piping and plant design and the turbine blades of a Rolls-Royce engine. How do you design it and then manufacture it? So it was very early days and we had to invent everything. We were replacing a drafting board. And it was a pretty good, uh, very, very interesting company. We went up to 11,000 employees in about a little over 10 years. It was uh, exploding in growth. And I remember our very first system. That led after 10 years where I had a job as a head of R&D for mechanical computer-aided engineering. And a little bit of background is early on in my career, I decided I wanted to be a top executive. It was just something I wanted to do. And strategically, I looked and I realized most CEOs either come with a science background or a sales and marketing background. If you just statistically look, that's uh, back then in the 70s and 80s was certainly true. I haven't looked recently. I would be surprised if it changed much. Um, I had neither, right? I was neither a scientist, nor did I have a sales and marketing background per se. So I made a choice of working in every department of a major company. So I started in customer service, answering service calls, you know, have you rebooted your system, sir? You know, you know the standard message you get. So that's how I started. That's amazing. And I went to quality assurance on the software side and was responsible for getting a major software release systems, actually. Then I went into R&D and ran R&D for a number of years and learned how to work with that. From there, I actually changed careers. I went to an artificial intelligence company and I took on a head of marketing role, again, in my career uh, objective, doing all the major jobs and understanding enough to be able to make a rational judgment and know <laughs> what what is likely to be true or not. In this a, generalist. <laughs> a generalist. It was, it was an absolute generalist and uh, from there, it led to a COO. I ran sales organization a number of companies, so it was sort of a hands-on learn as you go, but I also had the tremendous luxury of some great mentors. Um, you know, it's uh, people who taught me uh, the right way to do this, and in a few rare instances, people who taught me what not to do because they were making mistakes. <laughs> you learn from both sides. You know.
0: so, so that's that's, uh, that's interesting uh, because you 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 put yourself a goal. Hey, I'm going to be CEO of a company and I need in order to do that, I need to expose myself to different facets of running a company. And that's exactly mm-hmm. what you did. Yep. Yeah, Operationally,
1: I- you learn from the best and you learn all the mistakes. So when you get there and inevitably happen in half a dozen completely different industries, at the core of it is business management and caring about shareholder value. Uh, you, I think all businesses have their own nuances. Certainly biotech is one of the hardest ones. 20 years ago when I worked in artificial intelligence, I thought that was the hardest ones. Uh, you know, So every time you advance, you think this is a new job, this is a harder, and yet there's another one. And that... Uh, computational engineering methodologies and tools that we invented back in the 70s and 80s is, to answer your question, Dan, how I got into biotech was the next company after the artificial intelligence company, we were building um, AI systems for Sprint and American Express and for NASA. Um, We also had a movie division where the division was in the very early days of computational movie making was making movies like the Batman movie with the penguin scene. We did the Terminator movie with the chrome. It was it was very interesting times, heady times. From there, I went back to modeling and simulation. And this time it was a tiny little 60 person company in Burlington, Massachusetts called Molecular Simulation. And what they were endeavoring to do was to take the same computational methodologies of how do you design something by computer and apply it to the biotech industry so for example 3d protein design how do you design a specific protein to bind with the site that you want to with a chemical bind and and how do you fold a protein, bioinformatics? So molecular simulation was one of the innovators and became one of the biggest vendors in that industry. Um, and that's how I kind of worked with almost every top 50 biotech pharma in the world to supply them software to reduce wet experimentation. Back then, uh, people would go in the lab, pick a couple of compounds, mix it, and I'm grossly oversimplifying it. Um, But by computational methodologies, you can reduce the mistakes, you can absolutely get to a place where you can better predict what's likely to succeed. Um, We um, had a discussion with a couple of clients and they said, if your software works so good, why don't you just use it to design a drug? Perfect. And I said, our software isn't yet sophisticated enough to tell you what is a drug, but we can tell you very early on what is not going to be a drug. Uh, you don't have to go into human talks to find out that something could be toxic. These days, toxicology, computational toxicology has become an incredibly important part of drug design, drug development. So that's how it got into biotech by selling tools, um, development and database, all kinds of analysis tools. And then um, we merged with a company. Microsoft company was a software company. The other company was a computational chemistry and really mostly uh, laboratory experimentation. Uh, They were building 5 million compounds per month uh, as a drug-like compound and screening them. So we thought if we could our predictive methods together with their experimental methods, we would do great. And that's how I got into biotech. That company had five of its wow. own internal drugs that it was advancing.
0: <laughs> and then that led
1: to Sonomics, and Synomics was a company that was trying to apply um, biotechnology methods, high throughput uh, chemistry, high- throughput screening, to taste to flavors and fragrances completely different than the pharmaceutical business, right? How do you come out with something that's sweeter than sugar, uh, but at much less potency? So you could use one in a million parts and get the same sweetness as sugar. How do you make salt taste saltier? You know, and there, there are indeed ways that Sonomics did have, patented ways, et cetera, to allow you to take less salt and have it still taste as salty. So those are the kinds of things that one thing led to another. Um, I think the ultimate um, end point was I started becoming a board member in a number of private and public companies. And I learned a lot about that level of management, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And somehow many of those board seats have led into an active job, which is what said that- here.
0: How does that work? Uh, How did how did you go from president and COO molecular simulations to then being invited to be a board member of other companies? Was it just through networking, through conferences, people you're meeting at different conferences? Uh, And and interesting enough, people I work with, uh, many of the people that
1: work with me and for me in various companies went off and their own wings. In one case, I started with a uh, uh, R&D uh, VP that had worked for me and wanted to go strike out on his own. A uh, couple of three years later, he asked me to join as a mentor to the CEO. And I did that. A year later, I was acting CFO of the company and acting CEO of the company. And a year later, I helped position them for a sale of a company and uh, they continued on and became a major, major success. So it's uh, quite often connections but also one thing leads to another leads to another and that yeah. has happened a number of times where i've joined as a board member and then they asked me to take more of an active role an operating role in many cases they're actually the ceo role which is how i became the ceo of this company i was an independent board member uh pretty analytical i dig deep i look a lot uh for me board seats are very very important um so um After a few months, the board asked if I would come out of retirement and take the helm of the company. And I thought uh, we had a really good shot on goal. I believe the compound itself was a strong compound and I agreed to come and do it. And will be four years since I joined as a board member pretty soon. And it's already been three years since I became CEO.
2: I have a question, what it takes to be part of a board, like a board member. Like you need to have some special requirements or uh, I don't know, what what, what do you have to bring to the table to be part or to be accepted, great,
1: to be great question. At the end of the day, I think you have to bring a combination of business acumen and domain knowledge. You know, if, if I was going to go become a board member in a company in an arena that I don't know anything about, then I'm limited in what I can contribute. So generally, you want to have enough business knowledge. And depending on whether you're a member of the audit committee, you need obviously financial background and financial acumen. If you're a part of the strategic planning committee, you need to know a little bit about the domain of the compound drug or the product, whatever that product happens to be. Um, And then you have to uh, decide that it's the kind of thing you wanna do because a board seat is radically different than an operating seat like I have right now. A board seat you meet quite often, uh, you make decisions, you guide the CEO and then you go hands off and let the company run its own course. As a CEO, you're much more steering the, the ship on an hourly and minutia basis. So, as a board member, you have to be willing to kind of uh, let go. And uh, I had a friend of mine who used to say, "Noses in, fingers out." As a board member, I think that's a that's an interesting
2: uh, paradigm <laughs> to think about. And then. Obviously, you have your, in your mind your vision that you wanted to be a CEO, but were you strategic on doing every single step of it, or it, or it just happened?
1: Uh, no, it's interesting. So after I had run the various different divisions, the service, the sales, the marketing, the only one where initially I didn't directly run was the finance organization. Then the next logical step was a chief operating officer, right? So I became COO of a company. Uh, We uh, merged uh, with our biggest competitor soon after I took over in a matter of months after I became COO, we became profitable and uh, we bought our biggest competitor that was over three times as big as we were. And that materially changed the dynamics of the company. We went from being a smaller company competing with two or three big ones to being the 800 pound gorilla on the market. And that allowed us a lot of extra resources. So then I became COO of that company. And I ran most of the functions except for the finance function, which quite often reports to the CEO. And then a few years later, when we merged with the other company and the CEO retired, I became president of the software division and also the chief operating officer of the parent company. So that's kind of the gradual move up the, the chain in order to be able to be the CEO. What
2: an impressive career, I must say, like impressive. Oh yeah, the, I mean,
0: the best is yet to come with uh, Kentara, yeah. <laughs> uh, it seems like. Can you talk about how, how you led into Kentara? What is Del Mar Pharmaceuticals and how is it related to uh, Kentara? Sure. Uh, and
1: it's interesting because prior to joining Quintar, I had spent a couple of years as chairman of the board of a company called La Jolla Pharmaceuticals. And La Jolla is a small town in San Diego, right on the water, beautiful spot. Uh, I left there in 2014 and then uh, principals of um, Del Mar approached me um, both to see if they would I would invest in the company, but also to see if I would join the board. I think they had heard about my experience in helping companies small and medium-sized grow, et cetera. And we interviewed for about six months. During that period, I did a lot of due diligence. I read about the compound. I realized that the National Cancer Institute had run uh, approximately 40 phase one and phase two trials with this compound. So it wasn't something theoretical or brand new right out of the chemistry bench. It was something that had quite a bit of data. and. Uh, And I fundamentally believe that in in biotech, um, you should subscribe to data trumps all. You know, we all have our religious beliefs. We all get uh, really glumped onto a particular program, project, whether it's the patients that uh, impact us, whether it's some um, data, but at the end of the day, data trumps everything. So based on that, I looked at the data from the National Cancer Institute. I looked at the data the company had produced and I actually thought they had a pretty good shot on gold at solving the problem, which was the other half uh, of the equation. And the problem is GBM patients. That's what the company was primarily focused on. The company was at the time executing a phase three study for refractory GBM patients. And uh, these patients are, at the end of the day, today for me, are a major, major driver of my uh, endeavor and my activities. I have met many of them. Um, The five-year survival for these patients is less than 5%. um, About uh, half of them pass away in less than a year and a half. And it's just not a, there's no current good solution for these patients. So the notion of being able to extend their lives while continuing a reasonable quality of life was very, very attractive. And I think um, Del Mar's compound, Valo 83, were now called Kentara. Uh, because we made an acquisition to diversify the company's assets, uh, has got a shot on goal, And we have uh, run many, many phase two trials. The data so far has been pretty interesting. And that's what got us involved with the Global Coalition for Adaptive Research. They have a platform study as a nonprofit organization, which means multiple companies can run their drug through the same trial in parallel. And that's what we're involved with right now. We consider it a life-altering opportunity for Kintara. It allows us to compete with the big boys who could spend hundreds of millions of dollars in a clinical trial and literally outspend you to success. It also uh, provides a very accelerated path through the clinical trial, the last stages of the clinical trial. And uh, my experience only 20 years in the industry shows that clinical trial design and patient selection and statistics have as much to do with the success of a compound as whether the drug works in the first place or not. It's really uh, it's hard to. Encompass that, but I have seen many, many clinical trials that failed on the first go around because we didn't know enough to design the perfect trial, or we recruited the wrong patients, or we didn't statistically power it enough. And that's why critical uh, design and the people who design it and then implementation is also important. You can start a clinical trial, but if you don't get the right sites to start enrolling, you will never enroll. I'm aware of a company who was running clinical trial, 300, 400 patients, 16 years in, wow. in enrollment. And how do you even keep a company financed for that <laughs> long? You know, I, I yeah. certainly wouldn't know how to do that, of that lengthy of a clinical trial. And then there's a complexity of where those patients are homogeneous, et cetera. So I think execution becomes important. And to me, GCAR, and uh, the GPM Agile team, are absolutely the, the peak of the mountain in respect to those capabilities. And validated, shown already based on what they have
0: accomplished. Yeah, I think uh, uh, yeah. part two is gonna be more about GCAR and the Agile study. But you know, I think it's interesting how your career with AI and software all these things that was decades ago, all these things are relevant there, you know, they've merged even more so into biotech. And now with omics, you know, next gen lab tools. I mean, this is exactly people watching and observing Kintara, you know, it's one thing if you're observing the company as an investor, I think it's an interesting company. That's one thing, but if you wanna look, if you wanna take a glimpse at what I think is the future of clinical research. It's exactly what they're doing with the Agile trial, at least for rare disease and and for unmet medical needs. It may not be the case for diabetes, hypertension, but for rare disease, underserved uh, therapeutic areas, I think this is like a sneak peek into the future of clinical research, especially with omics and uh, you've got like um, microbiome, You've got epigenetic gene expression, all these things. Uh, So that's pretty interesting. Just to give people a taste for what part two of this interview will be. uh, We had some good announcements recently from Kentara regarding the study. Can you share a little bit about that with with the audience?
1: Yes, I think everybody should know that we initiated the arm enrollment for the Kintara uh, arm back in January 6th of this year, Uh, GCAR's GBM Agile team had been working four years from inception to get to that point. During that time, they got a phase three study approved. They brought on well over 30 sites. I think at the time it was 36 or 37 U.S. sites that were enrolling. And that's a major accomplishment since many of these sites are the big enrolling sites. And what we were uh, hoping for is to get into that system, especially since uh, some of the principles that uh, um, did the GBM Agile trial, and it's interesting, Dan, that you think this could be a path to the future, and I agree with you. I don't think not for every disease, not for every indication, but I believe there are some tougher indications, deadly diseases where this kind of a platform trial can be incredibly powerful. An example of this is uh, some of the principles that are involved with the GBM Agile trial back in um, 10 years ago, they were involved in a similar platform trial called iSpy. And iSpy was for breast cancer. And in a 10 year period, using the same methodologies of adaptive design, platform design, iSpy ran 16 compounds through the clinic and of which three received accelerated approval. So those are the kinds of power that this kind of a trial can bring versus each one of those 16 companies running one trial at a time, recruiting their own control arm and uh, effectively competing for resources for clinical trials. So the GBM Agile allows that uh, to happen in a faster basis and it happens at a much less expensive basis versus running our own independent trial. We recently announced last week a press release went out that said we have in a four month period since initiating uh, patient randomization uh, have started enrolling in 15 sites that GCAR has enabled. That means the IRB approved it and the training has been done. And those sites as of last week are actually randomizing patient for the Kentaro arm. And that's in four months (laughs) to me, in my experience, that's pretty phenomenal. Can Genentech do that? Yes. Can a small company like Kentaro do that by ourselves?
0: Impossible. Impossible. Wow. Yeah. That's uh, see, this is exactly why. And I think, This era, because of omics and because precision medicine, I think we're, and I read on Twitter, I don't know how accurate it is, but this year alone, 2021, we had like uh, 200 biotech IPOs or something crazy like that in 2021. So this is just going to continue going forward. And uh, I think things like Agile study are going to be at least for rare diseases 60 biotech ipos so far in 2021 it's yeah. only june it's june 2nd guys so we're on pace for 120 ipo before this year's over when we say small is the new big we're not just saying it because it sounds cool this is the reality of what we're seeing Kintara is a perfect example of this uh yeah, and you I add to that the number of biotechs that got financed in uh,
1: December to March timeframe. You know, it outstrips the 60 IPOs. IPOs are just the new companies.
0: Right. A lot right. of other
1: companies were able to enhance their opportunity to get success during that same period uh, because the market was hot. So, sure, yeah, there's a lot of opportunity out there in biotech.
0: Sure. IPO is almost like Creme de la creme, right? Uh, You have so many that are not public yet. You know that getting finance, like you said, part two is going to be great. Monica, any any other questions for Said? I have one more, but after you.
2: No, 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 no worries. I'm just amazed about his career. I was thinking that he is like uh, like the master of the orchestra. That they need to know (laughs) each instrument to be the the true leader. So. So that's, uh, I mean, that's, that's something that not, not every single CEO has. No. And I think that's, uh, that's, uh, that's probably your competitive advantage you. <laughs> over many CEOs. <laughs>
1: I agree with you. I think one of the things is there are many, many CEOs who have both the scientific and sales background and can do it all, but I don't have that level of expertise. So I have to rely on other people. And I have to gather people around myself that are smarter than I am and listen to them. You know, We joke inside that if you ask the right questions, the answers will become self-evident. And I actually (laughs) very strongly believe in that. Uh, And the questions have to be asked. So that's why having some experience in each one of the groups uh, allows you to ask the right questions and having really smart people around yourself that are absolutely smarter than you in their domain. Is a critical success factor. Critical we're very career. fortunate at Kentara to have been able to not only retain the staff that have been working for us for well over ten years. We've actually recruited some additional uh, staff to augment the existing expertise. So I'm very pleased with how things are progressing.
2: And and okay, you didn't uh, have that um, success without having all your career path. So it's truly it's truly impressive.
0: Thank you. Yeah, Yeah. these days, the biotechs, you know, it's all about the platform, really. It's less about the particular compound, more about the platform, like longer term, unless it's Mm -hmm. for a rare unmet need. But basically, you either need a scientist CEO, in my opinion, or you need a generalist like Saeed, who's kind of done every role you can think of in this space. Uh, you need someone who understands what they're doing, basically, and not just financial arbitrage, uh, because I think that's old school. I don't think that's the new generation. Uh, there's just too much data. There's there's too much that can be done with the data to just do financial arbitrage uh, right. <laughs> with these biotech. Last, last question, Saeed, for people trying to maybe emulate your career, uh, you mm-hmm. know, biotech generalist, life science generalist, now with omics, there's gonna be an explosion. Maybe we inspire somebody watching this. Can you recommend three books that they can read?
2: Ooh.
1: You know, that's a good question. I have historically not been a good uh, book reader, uh, much more learn as you do, uh, but uh, read everything you can about managing change. If I was to say the one lesson in life that I took away, and sometime three sessions from now, maybe we'll talk about this book that I've been trying to write for seven years. Oh, you're writing one. I'm trying
2: uh, things (laughs) that seem
1: like a good idea at the time. Um, And it's it's very interesting the way I think of it. But uh, one of the things uh, I've learned is be really adaptable. Change is going to come. It's going to happen every hour in business, in your personal life. You can either argue, fight it, be upset about it, and have it be a negative, or you can figure out how to leverage it and take advantage of it. And I think uh, anything that teaches you how to be adaptable to change, how to use it as an opportunity rather than a blocker. It's been tremendously valuable for me personally to go in with that mentality. You know, you're going to get acquired or your company is going to get sold or you're not going to be able to raise enough money or you don't hit the quarterly numbers and you have to do a reduction in force. All of that has changed. You know, employees retention, you know, everything in a company is always dependent on how stable is the base and does it have the resources? And quite often the companies I go into as a turnaround, they don't. So I have to modify it. I have to enhance it. Read everything you can about how to adapt to change. Same thing I tell my kids.
2: Changes, yeah. changes yeah. are inevitable. Yeah. That actually makes me think about a book, Built to Last. It's a very old book, but it's very current, I think.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, we can't wait till part two. Uh, we'll schedule that soon. Uh, you've got a great, great team helping you share the story i think when when we have companies like this with you know 53 million dollar market cap at the time of this video i think the story needs to get out and we you know there's like look there's 60 biotech ipos just this year so far we can't possibly cover all of them but i think the ones with the good stories tend to rise to the top and i think in my opinion Kintara is definitely one of those for a variety of reasons but the CEO. I mean, oftentimes it Thank starts with so the kind. CEO. Thank you. Well, it's true. It starts with the CEO. I mean, that's, you know, you got to bet on the jockey sometimes. And um, the, I think we have that here. So I think people looking at Kintara for the agile study can also look at Saeed's career, connect with him on LinkedIn, and then kind of pay attention to what's going on with this GBM study, because this is a rare unmet need. I think this is going to be important for clinical research, and I don't think enough is discussed in regards to this type of a study design. We we interviewed Greg Johnson, uh, who who helped, uh, who's who's playing a key role. Another generalist that's involved with with Kentara. So, part two, we're going to talk more about Kentara current uh, state of affairs, agile study. Maybe we'll know some more things coming out by then. So we'll set that up, but I really appreciate it, Saeed and Monica, uh, for doing this interview. And uh, we can't wait to do part two. Great. Thank you very much. I enjoyed this very Thank much. You. Monica, great to <laughs> see you again. Dan, have a great Thank day, guys. You. <laughs> Thank you, guys. You too. I appreciate it.
1: Bye-bye.